everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. We hope you had a very Merry Christmas, and you're going to have a good New Year, too. We've had thousands of downloads of our podcast this past year, and that is all thanks to you, our listeners. Thanks for helping us have a great first year of the Flatlining Podcast. Last week, we started our best of programs. We shared the third and fourth most listened to segments that we had had over the year. And number four was our discussion on Dr. Joseph Mercola and his strange vaccine theories. And at number three was our discussion on the fact-free zone. Our second most listened to segment of the year was actually our first episode. Back in March, Ron and I discussed why economics matters in healthcare. Take a listen. Like all things in economics, there's arguments on either side of things. I mean, Harry Truman was fond of saying that he wanted to find a two-handed economist because everyone he ever talked to said, but on the other hand. Right. Um, <laughs> so the, the most common thought is that some amount of national debt is not bad, just like some amount of consumer debt is not bad. And that if you were truly completely debt-free, you're probably limiting the growth of your economy. Now, there's very few economists who think that 133% of GDP is, is not bad right. to some degree. Yeah. And, and there's general consensus that some amount and a pretty large amount of stimulus was needed to forego a full collapse of our economy. And you could argue whether it needed to be $5 trillion or $2 trillion or but a significant amount of money needed to, was needed to keep us sort of going. It's like infusing blood into a patient who's bleeding. You know, you, you got to do that to keep her from dying. Right. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're already seeing some of the early results of that. We're seeing high inflation rates right now. That's partly a result of having that much cash flow in the system. We're seeing a very difficult labor market because of the amount of cash that's flowing in the system. We're seeing some, you know, some supply chain issues and demand issues. Um, what we haven't seen yet, which will be the next shoe to drop, which is incredibly damaging, is increase in interest rates. Um, and all of this is going to then put pressure back on the healthcare system because, like I said before, healthcare is usually the second largest expense for a lot of employers. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest chunk of the both federal, state, and local governments. And so to the extent that it's the big expense area, when economic times get difficult, there's going to be enormous pressure on healthcare to try to control that expense. And I think we can get really tempted too to 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 um, devolve into if only isms. And and you talked a little oh, bit yeah. about this a couple weeks ago, or rather last week. You know, if only we did this, this would solve our problems. And and I know that sometimes you sometimes hear educators say, if only we had more money, we would have better education. And mm -hmm. sometimes you hear the same thing with healthcare. And you talked about if only we we went after the. Uh, and this is switching gears a little bit from talking about the pandemic, but if only we mm -hmm. went after profits and of the insurance of big pharma companies, we would we would save our healthcare costs. And I think that that's something that's probably going to be brought up a, a couple times coming up into the midterms from people who either want to push Medicare for all or they want to push some form of price control or some sort of extremely high tax uh, that they're going to start saying, if only we cut the profits of big pharma, of, you know, Merck, Biogen, mm -hmm. et cetera, that we're going to lower the costs for everyone in this country. And you seem to disagree with that. 
Well, there, there's two problems um, in, in that. One is there isn't a silver bullet. There isn't one thing you're going to do to fix healthcare and healthcare cost and coverage and all that. It, it just it doesn't exist. Um, if it did, we would have done it by now. Um, so this, if only we would just, you could stop right there, and I, I can, I could stop somebody and say you're wrong. Because right. there isn't the magic bullet. There isn't one thing. This is an incredibly complex problem that's going to require a number of actions to fix it. The second is usually the back half of that sentence, if only we would just, is not backed with any sort of data or understanding of the reality of it. So you say, well, if only, if only we would just you know, eliminate all the profit of the big pharma companies, then we would be just fine. No, we wouldn't. You add up all the profits of the big pharma companies, it doesn't even scratch the surface of what we need need to do to healthcare cost. Um, If only we just got rid of the insurance company's profit. No, there's enough money there either. If only we would just go to Medicare for all, everything. No, no, that doesn't work either. And then it ignores the unintended side effects, you know, if only we got all the profit out of the big pharma companies. Okay, well, let's say we did that. And let's say it was enough money, which it's not. Why would they start developing drugs? Why would they take the risk? And there is a lot of expense to go down a rabbit hole that might produce nothing. You know, guess what? If there was no profit in oil, nobody would be tapping wells anymore either. Right. You know, if there was no profit in, in a lot of businesses, nobody would spend the money you take up front. Because the only reason you do it is to get the return. Now, I'm more than happy to have an argument about whether the profits of big pharma should be somehow regulated or controlled and what the side effects of that are, but that if only we just doesn't work. And it, it unfortunately adds system noise to what really needs to be a bigger discussion. And to that point about um, drug companies not wanting to invest in new drugs, that's been their uh – their uh, argument against having Medicare negotiate drug rates. Uh, and I, that's something that we heard from President Biden a couple weeks ago in his State of the Union address. He wanted Medicare to start negotiating drug rates, uh, to quote him, just like the Veterans Affairs does. But the drug companies claim that if you give us rates too low, we're just not going to develop new drugs anymore because we won't have money for research. Yeah, I, I think the the. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying you necessarily agree or have or have to agree. No, no I, I, first of all, I think you know Biden's comments about it. You know, we need to negotiate um, drug rates that'll that'll help um, miss the big point and um, the the sort of the big opportunity. Just like you know, a lot of the other attacks, whether it's on, on you know drug companies or insurance companies or doctors or hospitals or whatever. Um, And the point that I think it misses is in a free market economy, which is what we have in a capitalistic free market economy site, you get the performance that the market or the game sets up. Okay. Take a different, you know, the reason why computers, laptops or personal computers have gotten so much better and so much cheaper than when they first came out because the market bait drove it. Because if you build a better product, you will sell that product, you know, and that's what free markets do. That's the advantage of them. The problem that we have when you look at just pharma, for example, is their incentive is to make a better drug clinically. And they've done incredible things with that. We've had amazing improvements. Mm-hmm. But they've got no financial incentive to make a cheaper drug, a drug that maybe is almost as good but half the price. That's what we need to fix. 
once we create an incentive that if a drug company knew, for example, hey, if my new multiple sclerosis drug can care for 95% of the patients with MS, just as well as the drugs that are in the market right now, but I can do that drug for half the price and I know I'll gain huge market share, they would do it. They'd do it tomorrow. But right now what they do is they know that if they make a drug that's just 5% better clinically, they can charge twice as much for it and it will be used. So are we surprised we're getting clinically better drugs at three times the price? No, that's exactly what the game's designed up to do. Well, then change the game. That's the key. And it kind of puts us in this catch-22 that, you know, if the drugs are supposed to be helping people, then the more people that take it, in theory, if it's going to cure you, then you're not going to need the drug anymore. Well, yeah. Well, I guess you're, the, the common thing is there cure versus right cure versus know, treat. That, that's yeah, that's treat. the difference. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, I used MS. If I had MS, I would want the best drug to help me treat my disease as long Absolutely. as I could. That, that's value. But again, the problem is we're making gains in clinical efficacy at massive increases in cost because that's what it's designed to do. An example might be too is is the problem of insulin. And uh, President Biden mentioned this a few weeks ago in his State of the Union as well, that he wants to cap insulin at $35. And there seems to be some bipartisan support for this, just given the amount of Americans that do need insulin for diabetes. Do you think capping specific drugs or price controlling specific drugs helps solve the issue of, of high costs? Um. In a macro sense, no. Uh, you know, even if you look at insulin, and, and the problem with, and I'm not saying necessarily we shouldn't look at insulin and figure out because there are a lot of people who need it, but even if you look at insulin, by itself, it's not a huge portion of the overall healthcare spend or even of pharma. The problem becomes it's a very easy thing for people to understand and that anecdotal experience of, well, you know, Mary can't get her insulin because it went up to X. And, and we should care about that, but from a macro perspective, it doesn't begin to make a dent. Staying with drugs, you talked before about um, Aduhelm, Aduhelm, and mm-hmm. we can we have that linked at flatlining.net, and it'll be in the show notes as well. And that's an example, I think, of where you could talk about trying to create more of a market for a drug, and we can talk more about whether or not the um, – the drug should have been approved at, at, at a different time or, or later in this program, if you want. But the the drug dropped from sixty thousand a year to about thirty thousand a year per patient. Sorry, I have a truck driving away. It's okay. The drug dropped from about sixty thousand a year per patient to thirty thousand a year per patient, and of course, it seemed to try and get more people to take it, I would assume, even though it has limited benefit. And that's, I suppose, an example of a market driving the price of something rather than putting a cap on it. A little bit. Um, It's at least a reflection that the manufacturers understand the, you know, the sticker shock of some of the price of these drugs. Um, But it, it still doesn't get at the core issue. I mean, the issue with that drug is, the you know, and again, we can debate whether it ever should have been approved, but mm-hmm. even with approval, the manufacturer knows that the benefits of that drug at best are limited. Um, and it, that it, it you know, it, it's approved, but really clinically, this is not a, a no-brainer kind of drug as far as it's, it's, and so because of that, they're like, oh, 
how about if we have a fire sale, half-off sale? Now we'll use it. And what they were really sort of trying to find is, well, do the doctors feel like it doesn't have clinical benefit? That's why they're not prescribing it because it's 60 a year. Or maybe if we cut it in half, someone will start using it. Right. So it's a recognition that they understand price has some component to do with it. But, I mean, let's put it this way. If that drug was clinically very good, let's say it, it doesn't cure Alzheimer's, but it significantly slows it down, well, it wouldn't have been 60000 It would have been 160000 Right. You know, so they would have gone the other way. Um, and that's one of the, you know, the big issues we have. And I suspect that with the argument about whether or not Medicare should cover a drug like Adjuhelm, that Medicare likely, I would assume they cover most drugs. Yeah. So in this, I'm glad you asked, this kind of gets on the crux of the, well, sort of what do you do? So, you know, Medicare, if it's approved, it gets covered. Okay. Because Medicare doesn't want to be in the role of saying which patient should get a drug and which shouldn't, or whether it should be available or which or that shouldn't. And I understand that. And physicians don't want to be in that role, you know, so they want to say, hey, if it's good for my patient, I just prescribe. I don't care about how it is to pay for it. And what we need is to figure out a way that when a drug is getting approval clinically, that there's a second sort of level of approval, which is when and how will it be used, and that that's an economic approval. You know, I tell people that, you know, hey, what if there was a drug that came out that would cure MS? It'd be great, wouldn't it? But what if the drug manufacturer said it's a billion dollars for each one? You know, and I know that's a ridiculous number, but it points right. out the fact that regardless of, of the drug's clinical effectiveness, we have to start looking at the price tag and saying, can we afford that drug? Because spending that money is going to divert money and resources from other things that may have more clinical benefit. Um, and that second level of proof, we need to figure out a way to do that so that a drug comes in and says, okay, it's clinically effective, but at that price, we're only going to approve it for people who meet this criteria, this condition, and vice versa. If a new drug comes out that's almost as good or, or as good but only for some of the people, that becomes the new first-line drug. No, you use that first because it's the same as this other drug for your condition, but it's a lot less expensive. That would create that economic marketplace where drug manufacturers would want to, to lower the cost of their drug or, or develop cheaper drugs to gain that market share. And this may be an example, too, probably one of a few examples where it may seem that Medicare for All-like systems are right, because the, the example you just gave, there's a perfect example of that is Trichofta for cystic fibrosis, which mm-hmm. was approved fairly quickly in the United States and then in Europe, but it took almost two years longer in Australia for, get, for it to get approved, and it's in part because they understood that they've got to weigh the cost of that. Yeah, and it gets into that, you know, the balance of, um, when when people sort of look at our country and say, "Oh my God, we you know we're we're so terrible because so many of these people can't afford health care," and so many, well, yeah, that that's the negative side effect of having the best and the most available and the highest quality healthcare delivery system in the world. Right. What we have is high quality, incredible access, the the it, it, most advances in technology, drugs, etc., and the side effect of that is we have people that don't have coverage or are undercovered. Other countries have full coverage, but they don't have access to the things we have access to. So it's sort of a pick your poison. You know, yes, right. those countries are right that they got to do the economic actions of it. 
we would, we're, we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. We want the best and the cheapest. And that's just not possible. And I don't even know if it's necessarily 100% desired. I mean, because in theory, if, you, if you've got to cut costs, you've got to cut them from somewhere. Right. Right. The trick is how do you cut them in a way that allows you to provide, you know, the most coverage and care to as many as people as possible and maintain as much of that quality as we currently have, the best of the quality. That, you know, how do you, you find that nice balance point? I don't know that there's anybody would disagree with the concept of everybody in America, we want them to have access to healthcare. Just like we want everybody in America to have a job and a house and food. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. noble concept. Right. But how do we do that without killing the rest of it? Um, the quality, because that's a very real concern. If we went to a, you know, a Medicare for all, we could swing back too far the other way. And I suppose part of that is is a political problem of of people on both sides refusing to at least try and meet in the middle and have a discussion. It turns into mudslinging and saying, "Well, they only want Medicare for all, so we're just not going to talk to them." Yeah, we, or expanding we, the Affordable Care Act or whatever their policy might be. We we have lost the ability to have, and we need to get it back somehow to have, you know, not just discussion, but debate. Debate's fine. You know, I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts and ideas. I don't for one instant think that all of them are right and that I'm the only proprietor of good ideas. Um, but we've got to figure out how to turn it away from, you know, we, they, on both sides. And into a, hey, I'll listen to your idea. You listen to mine. Let's figure out where, you know, what the best of both of them are. Staying with talking about money and economics for just a second, but switching gears slightly, I want to talk a little bit more about in, uh, some of the insurance companies because this is this is kind of what we do at Fulcrum Strategies is, is we, we work with a lot of them to represent – to help doctors out and help them get paid more fairly in front of the insurance companies. And an instance where that may not be happening, and we wrote about this a couple of weeks ago – is United's healthcare, excuse me, United Healthcare's plan to rank radiology labs. And this might be an instance of where when you're trying to cut costs, you're also cutting corners. Do you mind talking a little bit about that story? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, United Healthcare, and, and first of all, United Healthcare is a for-profit publicly traded entity, okay? Like every publicly traded entity, their goal is to maximize their shareholders' investment. Period. That's okay. Um, And in doing that, they do what's good for their shareholders. Now, one of the things they're doing right now is they're saying that they're going to go through and they're going to rank imaging centers where you get your MRI, your CT, et cetera. And then based on that ranking, they're going to tie people's benefits to it. So somebody has a $50 copay for an MRI. It's $50 if they go to this center. And it's $100 if they go to this more expensive center. And the way they're doing that ranking is they're saying, well, first we're going to check quality because we want to make sure there's at least enough quality there. And then if quality is equal, then we're going to determine based on price. And that sounds great, except when you get sort of underneath it, you realize that their definition of quality is if you can clear three hurdles. And I won't, you know, the, a lot of people won't understand sort of the details of this, but basically the hurdles they're asking you to clear are very, very easy and everybody's going to clear it. It's sort of like if a college entrance criteria was, you know, can you fog a mirror? Right. Or can you spell yeah. your name? Yeah. Okay, you're in. You passed our criteria. You're a smart kid. 
Um, and so they've created this fallacy of quality, and then they're going to purely do it on price. Now, what most consumers don't understand is that quality stuff really is important, when it, especially when it gets to imaging and most other specialties. For example, um, if you've got something going on and your neurologist is trying to diagnose it and they're, you know, they're concerned about something, you're going for a brain MRI, boy, the machine that you're on, the upgrade of the software that they're using to, read, to take those pictures, the technician skill, and absolutely the level of training for the, the radiologist that's reading it, those are all important things, mm -hmm. okay? But none of those things will really play into the quality scrub that United is using. And so you could come through this and end up going to the wrong imaging center because you think it's quality, getting your MRI read, and if they miss something, it could be fatal, you know. So if they miss an embolism or if they miss it, you know, um, it can be fatal. And so that's one of the big concerns about, you know, I understand why they're doing it. It's help, It's good for their profit. It's good for their shareholders. But for the individual patient, it could be bad. And the consumers don't fully understand that. You mentioned they're for-profit companies. Cigna is another one of these big for-profit companies. And one of the people we've been following on, on their own substack is Wendell Potter. And he pointed out that, you know, Wall Street punished Cigna not too long ago uh, when they said that 2022 is probably not going to be a big year for growth for them. And how does that also correlate with sort of what United's doing in trying to make sure they're getting as, you know, they're raising their profits for their shareholders as much as possible? Well, and that's one of the things that, you know, every industry has to be careful of in the, you know, in this kind of environment, in a capitalist environment. You know, for-profit companies have to continue to make profit, and Wall Street wants them to make bigger and bigger profits. And their executives have a lot of stock tied up in that, so it's, they're personally invested to it. Now, a lot of that turns into very positive things. It's why you know, Apple's products keep getting better. It's why, you know, we're seeing the advances in electric automobiles, et cetera, because you do better things, better goods or services for your customers, you win. So for the most part, that profit drive and continue that drive to make you continue to improve ends up with a good product, meaning that the only way that you can continue to improve is to continue to provide either a better good or service for your customers. That's great. And we've seen the advantage of that. The problems in healthcare is for insurance companies, there's a bit of a disjointedness there because their end customer, the people with the insurance, the patient, really aren't the people who pay the bill. And so they can do what's right for the, their stock price and improve their profits. And if it's harmful to their customer, the patients, that might not necessarily reflect in them losing market share because it's not harmful to the employer who's paying the bill. So it's a really bizarre sort of economic structure. And so, yeah, if you look at the last two years of the pandemic, you know, the average of the big for-profit insurance companies, their stock price over two years went up by like 60-some percent. I think for United Healthcare, it's like 96% increase. And that's great, and Wall Street's happy, but they also want it to continue and get even bigger. And it puts enormous pressure on these companies to find profits, more profits. And sometimes that pressure results in what is bad for patients or physicians or hospitals. Um, and that's what is a bit concerning. 
That enormous growth that some of these companies had during the pandemic, I think a lot of people wonder what caused that. So what did cause that? Yeah, so um, health insurance is probably one of the only industries where the pandemic was a financial, or health insurance was one of the only industries where the, the pandemic was a financial boon. And it has to do with when you think about how their business model works. In the simplest forms, a health insurance company collects premiums. That's their revenue. And then they have to pay out claims for health expenses. And what's left over is theirs. That's just a very simple business model. Well, the first part of the pandemic, remember, was when all elective procedures and everything shut down. So you weren't getting elective procedures. You weren't getting your screening mammogram. You weren't getting, right. you know, all these things weren't happening because the hospitals are just dealing with COVID. Well, that means they were collecting all their revenue, but not any expense. So they made huge profit from that. And then the other thing that happened, and this is going to sound a bit morbid, and I, 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 don't, I don't mean it to be, I'm not at all unsensitive to the fact that a million people lost their lives in this country from COVID. Mm-hmm. Just purely looking at it from an actuarial economic perspective, we know and we've known for a long time that 5% of our population, about 5% of the people, consume 50% of all the healthcare expenses. Right. Okay. And the bottom 50% of the people consume almost nothing. So we've got this scenario where a, a small part of our people chew up most of the expense, and a lot of people don't spend hardly anything. Well, that 5% of the people were the people hit most hardest by COVID because they are the ones that have the underlying conditions, diabetes, mm-hmm. obesity, COPD, et cetera. That's who the people who died for the most part. So from an insurance company perspective, and I know this part that seems morbid, I apologize, but is that was also very good for them because they got rid of all the sick people. And so now they're going to keep, you know, roughly 95% of their revenue but lose a huge chunk of that 50% of their expense. In terms of insurance speak, they call it their book is their book of business or their groups. Their book just got a lot cleaner, meaning right. a lot healthier. Right. And so that's going to help them going forward. So, yeah, it was one of the few industries that, if anything, and I know they didn't want it and they, they aren't happy about it, but pandemic was a good thing for them financially. Did publicly traded hospital chains see the same amount of growth? Well, No. And hospitals were in a different scenario because they lost a lot of that revenue from all that elective stuff when things were down. Right. And that now that things have come back, and somebody said, well, yeah, but they had all those COVID people in their hospital. Yes, that didn't offset the revenue they lost from not being able to do outpatient surgeries, et cetera. And now the reason why the hospital chains aren't seeing that same bump is they're seeing massive increases in labor cost and supply cost. Right, right. Yeah, and see, and that brings that brings up an interesting point about the difference between the actual in, the insurance economy side of the healthcare problem and the actual healthcare delivery side of the healthcare problem. They're two different things, and I don't think a lot of people fully understand that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, insurance is just financing healthcare. They don't provide any healthcare. You know, they pay for it. It's, it's. I tell people, think about. It's like the difference between your bank who holds your mortgage and the guy who built your house. Right. You know, one of them actually did the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the other one, and not that the other one isn't an important part. I mean, I no. wouldn't have a house without the bank, but they are very different markets, very different scenarios. 
So bringing to that point, because the insurance side and the delivery side are so different and we deal, we represent, for lack of a better term, the delivery side of the equation, why is it important that that side is more represented than it currently is? Um, I think for a long time, the delivery of healthcare and, and mostly more on the physician delivery than the hospital delivery, but to some degree on the hospital delivery, has been incredibly focused on what they do, the delivery of care, and not focused on telling their story and not focused on the, for lack of a better term, the marketing or the public relations, which is really explaining to your consumer your value. And they just haven't done that. They, they haven't mm-hmm. focused on it because they've been so hyper-focused on improving the delivery and quality of care, which is good. I'm glad they focused on that. But And because of that, we've created this, and they've been sort of outplayed by the insurance companies who do a very good job of public relations. And because of that, we've created this environment of a bit of a fallacy of, of you know, who's at fault and what the problems are. I mean, I hear people say all the time, um, well, you know, doctors, I mean, their, their incomes just keep going up and up and up. And right, right. That's the problem. Well, no, that, that's absolutely not true. If you look at average physician income adjusted for annual inflation, they haven't been getting any raises. You know, they've been basically holding their own. So it's just, but it's this fallacy that gets created. You know, well, they all make too much money. Actually, if you look at it economically, becoming a doctor is a pretty lousy personal economic decision. Right. You know, your <laughs> your earnings period is pretty short. You start with a huge amount of debt. I yep. mean, you could pick almost any other white collar profession and over your lifespan do better. Um, and that's why I think, you know, they need to be better represented because the consumer needs to understand not that there aren't problems in any part of it, but this is what they do. This is who they are. And this is what, if we do too much damage, what we're going to end up getting. Now that we know that economics matters, we can apply that lesson to a case study we discussed this year. Earlier this year, Bright Health Group announced that they were pulling out of many markets because they simply were not profitable. At the time of this recording, their stock is trading at $0.57 a share, and that's down from their all-time high of $16.70. Ron and I discussed back in October the reasons a health insurance company might go out of business and what physicians and practices need to be prepared for. Our most listened to segment of 2022 is the decline and fall of Bright Health Group. For those of you that hadn't read the newsletter from last week, we, we at Fulcrum Strategies were able to confirm that, bef- I think before it got really public, was that Bright Health Group uh, announced that they're pulling out of their exchange plans in most of the states that they operate in currently, except for Florida and California. And first, Ron, why don't we start back at the beginning? Because Bright Health Group is one of these, they were one of these private equity back groups, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, did they have something specific about them that made them stand out compared to other exchange plans that were being offered in many of the states they were in? Um, there are others like Bright Health, um, but basically, Bright Health was a 
a, a group that was formed and entered into the market. They weren't an insurance company before they, they started very recently. Um, and they saw market entry into these exchange plans, these Affordable Care Act subsidized plans, which are an individual, you know, individual members choose their plan. Um, they got some funding from some PE money. They're now publicly traded and they decided to become an insurance company. And so mm -hmm. they're different than, let's say, uh, Cross or United who sells an exchange product, but was an insurance company prior to this. This is their first foray into health insurance. Um, there are a few other companies that are similar to them, Friday's Health Plan and a few others. Um, but that's really what made them different than what you would think of as a Cigna, Aetna, Blue Cross, United, et cetera. So mostly that they were they were the new they were the new kids on the block, you know, trying to offer something mm -hmm. different. Um, yep. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. Well, they, it's not so much they were trying to offer some. They were the new kids on the block, getting into the what they have found to be a very difficult environment right. of being a health insurance company. It's not as easy as it seems. They seem to be. Um, I don't want to say doomed from the start, but almost doomed from the start because we we've talked about their their share price before, and it peaked when it opened. Um, mm -hmm. At I'm looking now at uh, at their their stock price. It peaked at seventeen dollars a share when they opened. Uh, as we're recording this, they're at a dollar and five cents right now. Mm -hmm. um, so what happened that caused them to immediately, you know, plummet down and to almost have? I mean, it looks like they had a few months of growth here and there, but other than that, it was generally a, a straight shot down for them. Yeah, well, what they learned um, is that, again, it's not always easy to be an insurance company, that there's an awful lot of things behind the scene that happen, a lot of infrastructure and experience that, you know, a United Healthcare or a Blue Cross plan has um, that isn't easy to replicate. And what they learned is that if you get the wrong mix of patient or you don't infrastructure and health insurance is a great way to lose a ton of money and they did you mm -hmm. know we've talked on previous shows where you know five percent of the population consumes 50 percent of all the healthcare dollars well you get too many of that chronically ill population and there's no amount of premium you can sell to make up for it and that's what happened to them they suddenly realized that their costs were far exceeding their revenue. Um, and that's not a great way to run a company. No, or, or uh, have a personal budget for that matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when they started to lose out this money, and I know that they pulled out of a few other states um, earlier in the year, was there a reason why that they've decided to pull out of almost all of them now, except for Florida and California? Was there a deadline they needed to hit by the end of the year? Well, yeah, so there was the, the reason is this. They came to the conclusion, and I think the very smart conclusion, that they were never going to be able to turn this around. They were hemorrhaging money like you couldn't believe, um, which is why the stock price, you know, is a buck. Um, and so it was time to sort of pull the plug. And doing it now, what it does for them is by getting out of the marketplace by James when they would have to renew, um, each of these states requires that these health plans have a certain amount of reserves. Um, and once you sort of pull the plug, some of those reserves get released because you're no longer going to need them. They've got to have reserves to pay what they call runout claims. Claims for all those members that received services in December, mm -hmm. but they're not going to pay until January or February. 
but they get a lot of that money released back to them to help make the company break even. My, I thought I read somewhere that they're going to get like $250 million released back to them mm -hmm. by pulling out of these states. Um, I don't know if they're going to be able to make a go of it as a company in California and Florida where they've got some different Medicare products. But basically what happened was some of their investors threw some additional capital at it and then required that they pull out so that this $250 million um, you know, can be re released to them. My guess is, and this gets into what PE money, um, is that their plan is to try to bolster the company, make it break even so it stops bleeding. And my guess is they're going to try to sell the plans in California and Florida. Um, is it possible from, is, is it possible for them to make money on those plans given that they aren't able to make money on them currently? It, it's possible. I don't think it's possible for them to make the kind of return that their investors want. Because one of the things that happens with insurance companies, which is why you don't see a lot of really small ones, is that there's a lot of economies of scale. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you become efficient by size um, <clears throat> to pay for all the infrastructure. And just having a couple of small plans in, in California and Florida doesn't really lend itself to making the kind of profit returns that their investors are looking for, which is why I think they're really trying to stop the bleeding, shore up what they have, and then sell it. Mm -hmm. They had some other products too, um, like New Health, for example. I'm assuming that the states that those were operating in are going away as well. Yeah, and those and all those states, those are going away, and a lot of those products really did never take off. Um, they just never got that sort of critical mass. Um, they were never profitable. It was, you know, as somebody who's been inside the industry for 36 mm -hmm. years now, um, part of me was like, geez, that isn't a surprise to me. You know, that what your business model was is extremely difficult to do. And the risk reward scenario is not one that I would have invested money in. Right. I, I want to get into the, the private equity discussion a little bit more in a few minutes. But first, I want to stay with, because you know, we're physician advocates at, at Fulcrum Strategies. What does this mean for the physician groups who currently have contracts with Bright Healthcare that are not in Florida or California? Yeah. So it means a couple of things. First of all, the good news is that you don't have to worry about your claims not getting paid. Okay, this, that these are regulated by the state Department of Insurance. They require reserve requirements. So, you know, all the services that you provide for these patients through the end of the year should get paid. There are state laws to protect you on that. Now, we're telling our clients, you know, don't wait to submit those claims. Don't mm -hmm. bond to them. I mean, as soon as December is done, make sure that all of your claims are submitted to the carrier so you can get paid. Um, but that's the good news. You're not going to be left holding the bag, so to speak. Um, now, the other thing it means is these patients are going to have to find another insurance company. Um, they aren't going to have the option of continuing with Bright because it won't be there. Mm -hmm. So these physicians should be talking to those patients about, you know, when you get that letter, sign up for somebody else and telling them if you want to stay, you know, with my practice, here are the options that you have that I work with. Um, because the, the, the really bad scenario will be, when some suspecting patient shows up in January and tries to present that Bright Health card, and that physician has to say, look, they're no longer in business. I can't mm -hmm. see you with that card. Right. Um, so those are the main things. Make sure the patients know they need to switch to another carrier and get your claims in quickly, but you will get paid.
And, and I suppose that because Bright Health is going out of business, that that wouldn't violate, you know, a physician telling them, hey, you need to get on a different plan. Here are the other ones that I'm contracted with. That doesn't violate any part of their contract where it says you can't actively, you know, try to persuade a patient right. to join another health plan just because they're going out of business. Right, right. Because it's a it's a foregone conclusion. You're not mm -hmm. that that provision in contracts that say you can't actively try to steer our customers away from us is a provision that means you're doing damage to us. Well, there's no damage to be done. You're not there anymore. They right. have to anyway. So you're right. So in many states, what will be the alternative to Bright Health for a lot of these uh, exchange uh, exchange patients? Because I know you know in the years after Obamacare, a number of states either had their exchanges shut down or they a lot of their plans pulled out. So for a lot of people, what are their what are their options other than you know Bright Health? Uh, and this is just the state of the affairs with these Affordable Care Act exchange plans. In a lot of states, Blue Cross is the only other option. Okay. Now, it's very state and market specific. Some markets have multiple options, mm -hmm. but there's a large parts of the country where without somebody like Bright, um, it's Blue Cross. Um, and, and again, in North Carolina, there are areas where it's only Blue Cross, but in other parts of the state, there are, there are another option or two. Mm -hmm. Does that harm patients, do you think, by only having one option on the exchange plan? Well, you know, the design was to try to have competition um, and to be a competitive marketplace. And as an economist, I always like competition. It's always better mm -hmm. for the consumer. So uh, it's not something that I could directly say, well, you know, Blue Cross does a terrible job. They don't. They do a good job. But a lack of competition is usually not optimal for the consumer. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is going to be the same scenario. Well, if you're curious more about the stock price, we'll have it linked in uh, the show notes for this program. Uh, you can also find other articles that we've written where we've talked about Bright Health just by clicking on that stock symbol. Uh, I said I wanted to talk about private equity. Do you think that this decline and fall of Bright Health is a referendum on private equity-backed insurance plans? Or, or do you think that Bright Health is more of a fluke in this situation? Well, um, I don't think it's... It, I don't think it's really a fluke, but I think it, it points out that people need to understand, and this is not a, I'm not making disparaging comments. It just is what it is. Mm -hmm. They need to understand what private equity is and how it works. Um, there is no greater mission here. It's not like people are going in and saying, oh, well, we're trying to, you know, feed the masses or provide health care to the unfortunate. It's an investment strategy by people. Right. And they would look for a return on that investment. But one of the things private equity companies, venture capital companies do the same thing, understand is it, it's like a, to use a baseball analogy, Babe Ruth struck out a lot mm -hmm. and he hit home runs. That's what he's known for. Okay. They know that these companies they invest in, that a decent percentage of them are going to go under and they might lose all their investment and they're looking for the home run. Well, what that, and you take Bright Health as an example. Um, Bright Health isn't going to make it, okay? They knew mm -hmm. that that was the risk, and they're going to try to get as much of their money out as possible, and they're going to take a loss, okay? It also points out that part of the reason why Bright Health will probably go away completely and be sold is because they're not in it just to break even or to make a 3% margin. They want a return of something usually on the order of 20%. Mm -hmm. And so even if Bright Health was just break even, it probably was end up doomed because that's not good enough, and that's that home run. And, and so you, we need to use Bright Health as an example to understand what this is. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It just is what it is. 
and they're not in it for the mission of caring for the sick. They're in it for a return on they can get in and out of market as they see fit. That's just that's how that works. Mm-hmm. But thinking about it in the healthcare, you know, perspective, it, with all the other private equity health plans yeah. out there, should um, patients who are either you know if they're customers, if they're clients of some of these health plans, should they be worried that um, theirs might take a turn for the worse as Bright Health did? Well, I you know yes, I think they should be concerned about it. The nice part in this market, meaning fully insured, affordable care, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. is as the consumer, you're protected. You know, a while right. ago, I mean, we did, I know we did a show about the faith-based, you know, yep. health plans, if the you will. Shares, yeah. And part of, yeah, the health share, and part of what I pointed out is, look, they're not regulated. So they could leave you holding a bag. Here they can't because the okay. state steps in. And if, for example, if Bright Health just closed up shop and said, that's it, I'm done and fired everybody. Each state would step in and pay those claims. They mm-hmm. would they would attach that reserve money, and the state would make it whole so the patient doesn't get put in it. So you should be concerned about it because you might have to pick a different health plan, right. but not the same level of worried about, you mean I could I could have all this cancer therapy and it not get paid and I then get billed by the, right. no, that that's there's protections on that. It's more on the level then of your employer decides to switch, you know, carriers for your right. for your health exactly. plan. It, that's that's yep. the level of worry you might have yep. to have. As it sounds like uh, what, what you're exactly. describing. Yep. Do you think that private equity backed um, physician groups may run into the same problems that private equity backed insurance has, or do you think that because those two the two operating models are so different? It's it's not it's not fair to say that these are going to have the same types of risks. Oh, it's the same. It's absolutely fair. Okay. Um, because if you think about the private equity model, they don't have an alliance or allegiance to anything. They're not married to anything. Right. You know, if a private equity backed physician group is losing money, the private equity people will dissolve it. Mm-hmm. They'll break it up into pieces. They'll again because there isn't. It's not like you know. I work for the, you know, the Williams family company, and we've been in you know furniture making for three generations, and this is our no. It's just an investment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no personal attachment to it. So when PE money gets into physician groups, that same risk could happen of if I can't get my return, I'm out, regardless of what that does to the group and their patients. Thanks for joining us on our Best Of episodes. If you have further comments about these programs, feel free to share them in the comments section at flatlining.net or on social media. Please also follow myself and Ron on Twitter. I'm at Radio Handley and Ron is at Ron Howardin. You can also send us an email at flatlining at substack.com. Your comments may even be featured on the program. We have some good stuff planned for year two of the Flatlining Podcast, so be sure to get every episode and every newsletter sent to your email address each week by subscribing for free at flatlining.net. You can also follow or subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howard again, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.